0: sometimes a project fails this can cause stress frustration and even loss of interest but what happens when you decide to pick up the pieces and try even harder this week join me zach walsh as i talk with dan from paleo gaming about his new upcoming game omega horizon this sci-fi tabletop role-playing game promotes you to build the world you want to see we talk failure asking for help and releasing a project that satisfies you Welcome to Schedule for Launch, a podcast to discover projects that you may have missed. This week I am joined by a creator that I've actually been trying to find some time to talk to, and uh, Dan, thank you for coming on to talk about Omega Horizons with me. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. I saw you posting things throughout Twitter and stuff, and I think I had been following Paleo Gaming for a little while, and I was like, I need to... I need to figure out what they do, but just time, and thankfully you sent me a message and I'm just really excited to be talking about this game.
1: <laughs> Thanks, yeah, was always, always uh, good to meet someone who's been following
0: us for a while. So, before we really get into what Omega Horizon
1: is, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure, uh, so my name is Dan Prusko-Buxbaum, I'm the president of Paleo Gaming. I actually am a hydrogeologist, that's my, my day job oh wow yeah yeah but I uh, I started paleo gaming uh, at this point about seven or eight years ago um, we started it as an eSports company we were fielding competitive eSports teams and running events and things like that and uh, I have always been a big fan of tabletop role-playing games I've been a dungeon master since I was 14 years old I'm now 34 so you've got two decades of, of experience but I uh, as most DMs do, I eventually evolved beyond printed settings and sourcebooks and rules and started homebrewing things, and if you homebrew things long enough, they start to look like their own games. And uh, at a certain point, I turned around and said, well, you know, I have all this stuff done. I've been putting all this time and energy into developing this stuff. I wonder if other people would, would maybe be interested in some of the worlds I'm creating, and uh, one thing led to another, and, and uh, here we are. Having launched the Kickstarter for Omega Horizon, which is already more than 650% funded, which is amazing and super exciting, and we're we're grateful for it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's becoming a reality. Congratulations. That's great to hear. Thank you. Thank you. So we can tell people a little bit more here. What is Omega Horizon? It's uh, a great question. Omega Horizon is a science fiction tabletop role-playing game uh, with a completely original mechanic set, so it's not a reskin of like a 5e or, or powered by the apocalypse. It's its own system, which is a, it's based on six-sided dice. It's a roll and keep system. So uh, certain traits go into how many dice you roll, others determine how many you keep, and then that result is what you compare to your target numbers uh, to determine if you succeed or fail. And the game is set in an original sci-fi setting that I have written. Um, and uh, it's, it's a game that focuses on customization in all things. Customization with character creation, customization as you develop your characters, uh, even customization of the complexity of the rules that you can either tune the game to be fun for a group that prefers more narrative uh, rules like play, or tune it for a group that really likes crunchy complex mechanics and likes the number crunching and the min-maxing and all that stuff there's something for everybody this game is very flexible in that regard
0: that's definitely something that I want to talk about because I'm going to be honest you guys did something that was so you basically made two different games to make this one game work in like a way but they they complement each other so well so we're going to get into that in a little bit but you were talking about character customization and yeah, there there's a lot to this uh, offhand. I think there's 12 species, 19 careers, 20 if you include custom career options. So this was all from the playtest that you sent me to look at and for me to come through and look at was this the play test stuff or was this all
1: options that you really wanted to have on launch? Oh yeah, these are all going to be in the core rulebook. All of these species, all of these careers. Um, And especially, I mean, the thing we've gotten the most positive feedback on is the idea of these custom careers where you can take the bits and pieces you like and mash them into something new that really speaks to your character as an individual um, and where they fit into the universe. Uh, Again, as somebody who's been doing this for 20 years, I've seen so often players make the comment, I really like, you know, Cleric, but I would have preferred this thing. Or I really like this, but I would have preferred that. And our system allows you to really just take a character and make them fit your vision for who you want them to be and how you want them to be. And that's super important to the core of our design philosophy is giving players NGMs the most options so that this game can be sort of a complete solution for them. Even if they choose to reskin the setting... This this game is really usable across multiple genres and across across multiple settings. So on the one hand, we wanted to tell a great story, which I really believe we have. But on the other hand, also we wanted to give people a complete system that would really uh, be a solution for their needs. And I think you guys really have done that.
0: Just from I haven't been able to read it back to back yet because the the (laughs) I think I said it to you before that you have a very full play test there the play test is 329 pages which i think you said is basically the entire game right out there
1: yeah it'll, it'll go through some revision which will likely cut it down but we also do do some writing i'm expecting we're probably going to clock in in the uh the vicinity of 350 pages is is my uh estimate yeah that's incredible it's it's really First of all, I
0: love how this book works together. Everything's very clean already. Um, I'm excited to see how things go with it further on. But one thing we we really wanted to talk about here is that original dice system. So you said it's a, um, sorry,
1: it was a keep and succeed kind of system, you said? It's it's a, we call it a roll and keep system. That's not a term that we came up with. Um, there have been a couple systems that have done that. For example, the uh, The Legend of the Five Rings. I think it was like 3rd edition, 2nd or 3rd edition did that with 10-sided uh, dice. Uh, okay. They had a, ten, ten, a D10 roll and keep system. But we've done it in a different way, and and we make the traits, uh, what you might call attributes, and the skills go hand-in-hand in, hand in a way to determine the dice that you roll and keep in a way that's that hasn't quite been done before. And D6 roll and keep systems are very rare. I really don't know of any off the top of my head i know Shadowrun uses d6 but i don't think it's quite roll and keep if i remember correctly but uh not many do it because six sided dice are a little tougher to work with than than your base 10 metric system (laughs) (laughs) so could you explain how it works a little bit
0: because i've personally never heard a of a uh, roll and keep system
1: Sure. So um, you have what we call traits, which again, like a, a D&D game, would call attributes, your strength, your agility, your constitution, intellect, wits, charisma, etc. And that is your keep, your kept number of dice. So what happens is if you want to make a skill roll, you look at your skill group, let's say, we'll, we'll look at athletics for an example. Okay. Athletics is a skill group under which there's a number of individual skills, balance, climb, jump, etc., So, your athletics determines how many dice you roll. If you have five in athletics, you're rolling five dice. If you have six, you're rolling six dice. You then look at the trait that corresponds to the individual skill. So, for example, balance uses agility, or climb uses strength. Okay. So, that determines how many of the dice you're rolling you get to keep to add up for your your final total. So, in the example that we say you have five athletics, if you have four strength, it means roll five dice, keep the four highest and add them together. And that becomes a number. Then your individual skills, you can have specialty ranks in that become a flat modifier on the end. So for instance, if you had in this example, if you had two in climb specifically, you would just add two to your final number. Okay.
0: So it's, it's like a, almost like a modified dice pool system then.
1: Sort of, yeah. So your skill groups are determining what you're rolling, your traits determine what you're keeping, and then your individual skills determine a modifier. That's so straightforward, and I love that. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, and the other thing is, I think it actually lends a hand to potential homebrew campaigns because if you come up with a new ability or something that you want to attach a skill to, you just create a new skill group with the skills that you think are covered under it, and it's very easy to then just put that right into the system. This will tell me the dice I'm rolling, I look at a trait for what I'm keeping, and I add my modifier. So it it makes it very, again, customizable, which is what we're going for. That customization really comes
0: through in a lot of different ways. I was looking through, just thumbing through the book, you know, the first thing you do is you look at that art, you look at some of the features, and one of the things that I noticed, for instance, was like an extensive list of different spaceships you can have, so. It looks like you and Paleo Gaming have really set this up to give people options. Yeah, that's the hope. So one thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, and I haven't unfortunately been able to sit down and watch it yet, is that you actually started kind of advertising, running, and trying this game out uh, through a stream, correct?
1: Yes, that is correct. So we, uh, we actually, Pre-filmed everything, uh, premiered it on a, a week-by-week yeah, basis, uh, once a week, through Twitch TV. We have a Twitch channel, and then loaded up to our YouTube channel. Um, I ended up bringing on three experienced role players who have been in other um, streamed actual play games: um, Heather Drew, Avril Illijay, and Jessica Lynn Parsons. Uh, and Jess okay. is actually uh, she's on the Dungeon Run, which is. I think like the second biggest streamed uh, game next to Critical Role. It's it's pretty big. Wow. Okay. I didn't I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we we decided rather than just using our, our home group, we wanted to bring in people who knew you know, had camera awareness, uh, mm-hmm. and and knew, you know, how to convey that emotion and get people excited about the game and, and all that good stuff. And they were they were awesome to work with, yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. Can you talk a little
0: bit about the reception to that, and what you uh, found out, some of the things you learned
1: during that? Yeah, I mean, the, the reception was uh, phenomenal, actually, and uh, we had a lot of engagement during the premieres on, on Twitch. Uh, myself and, and the actresses, you know, they, they hung out in the chat. Since it was pre-recorded, we were able to just interact with the uh, with the audience in real time. And uh the audience was really excited about everything and and not just about the story, which was great and, you know obviously people were really interested in the story but the off the bat people were commenting on the the rule system and the mechanics and how they felt it was lending itself to telling a great story and uh, we've seen actually a lot of people who watch that, stream who hadn't heard of the game previously who have now backed the Kickstarter and are in our discord server talking about the games they're now running in Omega Horizon and they're excited about it and that's really it's been a great reception
0: yeah I've I've seen a little bit from the discord and I was I was really pleasantly surprised because sometimes I'll hop into these games and it's it's either a quiet discord or there's like a very vocal few but you have like a a pretty tight-knit community that's formed around this game and it's it just went to Kickstarter. What a couple days ago, right? Uh, it's we're a weekend, one weekend. Yeah. Wow. Let's let's talk a little bit about the the themes in this game and the setting. So you said that this is based on an old tabletop setting that you created.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah, Omega Horizon. Uh, originally, I did it as a uh, <clears throat> a homebrew sci-fi version of. Um, the Chronicles of Darkness D10 success failure system, though ultimately I didn't feel like it completely worked with the setting, which is why I ended up creating my own setting instead. But that's its first iteration was for my home group uh, as a homebrew setting. Yeah, so it started with a, a homebrew setting,
0: and I just wanted to some of the themes that are mentioned right in the the top of the game for the the base. No homebrew of this game and its setting are the three core themes to it, which are the um, humanity and the perils of AI, survivability in deep space, and individuality versus collective. Can you expand on these a little bit and tell us about how the system and the game lends itself to talking about these?
1: Sure. So um, the first uh, big theme is the idea of humanity versus artificial intelligence and what defines humanity. Um, For me, science fiction has always been a lens to examine our world um, and our choices as cultures and as people and to take that in a way that takes all the political charge out of it to just look at it objectively and say, is this right? Is this wrong? How do we really feel about these issues? And so I thought it was very important as I started creating a sci-fi IP that I wanted to tackle these philosophical, meaningful issues, um, and so the issue of uh, very poignant, very relevant to today of you know artificial intelligence. Some people are very much for it, some people are afraid of it, and you know will it take over and kill us all and all that other stuff. But <laughs> I think that the best thing about AI is that it's a mirror for humanity. Right? We're we're afraid of it yeah. because I think on some level we fear ourselves. And so we fear anything we create must be violent because we have violence, right? So I think that that's the, the beauty of AI is that it is a mirror of, of who we are as a culture and we're worried about it reflecting us too real. Well, then the answer is maybe we need to inflect a little, right? So that's part of it. And the other part of it is where's the line, right? As we start to advance as a culture and we start to integrate more technology into our bodies, there's that question of do you cross an invisible line. Do you cross this threshold where you're not human anymore? Or is human... does that just mean your consciousness? or What does it mean? And if that's true, well then I think it broadens the idea of what classifies as human. And uh, for that reason, to compare it to a contemporary, uh, Shadowrun is, is a cyberpunk game. This game, I call it space because there's more space opera elements to it, but there's still a heavy cyberpunk element to our game. And um, Shadowrun and other cyberpunk games often incorporate some sort of limitation, uh, a hard number of how much tech you can incorporate into your body before you lose your character, before it it becomes nothing more than a machine. And I very purposefully didn't put that into the game. I didn't put a hard, fast limit of, here's the line, because I think that that's the, the thing to mine. That's the the deep question to ask of, is there a line? And if there is, where is it? And... Does it functionally matter? And, and all that stuff. So I, I'm excited to see the stories people tell and how individual groups tackle and, and wrestle with that issue. Um, so that that's, that's probably the, the most important issue for me in the game, the most important theme for me in the game, second to the other question, which is individuality versus the collective, right? The idea that people are good, but groups of people are bad, right? This mob mentality idea and, and you know, that, that secular groups can take advantage of people and all that stuff. So in Omega Horizon, I call it dystopian, but it's sort of an optimistic dystopian in a way because the dystopian element revolves around the collectives. Every major faction in the game has this dark shadow about it where even if they claim that they're altruistic and their moral, you look at their actions and you have to question that because it doesn't line up because they just have you know justifiable collateral and all these negative traits about them. But on the individual level, people make a difference. People can be heroic. People can choose to do the right thing in the face of adversity. And so that's sort of this theme of who you are as an individual, how you relate to your faction, you know, are you the kind of person that just beats the drum and is ultra patriotic towards your faction or do you sort of see through them or are you disenfranchised with them? But that struggle of the individual versus the collective, I think that's something, especially now here in America today, we wrestle with a lot of, you know, you could take two people, you know, not, not to bring politics into it, but you, you bring two people from either side of the aisle and say, you know, they live next to each other, they're neighbors, and I'm sure they're wonderful to each other, and they're pleasant to each other, and they like each other, and they do anything for each other. But then they're both separately caught up in this, you know, the other argument, and they're divided, because that's what it is. On the individual level, people can connect and help each other and be good. But the second you conflate it to this bigger, higher cloud, this ethereal cloud of the, the social cultural consciousness is where things get messy
0: i think those dualities in this game is really one of the things that is making me so excited to see what stories are going to be told because you're a small independent company but there's a lot of positive attention coming towards this the tabletop role-playing scenes getting bigger and ba- bigger every day and i, I really feel like America Horizon can sort of fill a niche that a lot of games don't. So I think that a lot of people who are listening to this now or find it in the future or are looking for something new will really appreciate this game and I think that's something that I'd really like you and your team to know right off the hop before we even go any further. I appreciate it. So let's get into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty when it comes to characters. So I know that there are a lot of character options um, and there are, like I said, a lot of species and there are careers. Careers act similar to this game's version of classes. Correct. Yeah. How do they really differ?
1: How do the careers differ from classes? Yeah. So classes, to to use D&D as an example, classes I are great because they establish an archetype for you. You know, if you tell someone I'm playing a cleric, they automatically know the kind of character you're playing. If you tell someone you're playing a rogue, they automatically know the kind of character you're playing. Um, So it informs how your character generally will approach things like combat, how they will uh, potentially approach certain um, decisions in game. But the downside of classes is they can sometimes be very restrictive, where you know clerics do what clerics do and they don't do a lot else they, they don't deviate much from that yes there, there's some fiddly bits you can pick up in the game via feats or you know whatever the case may be certain spells that allow you to encroach a little bit into other classes territory but largely they're meant to be their own thing and feel very distinct but that means that you're stuck doing that thing so careers in Omega Horizon are broader than that careers give you a unique ability that allows you to interact with your universe around you in a way that other careers can't. However, while the career determines your starting traits and skill groups, you have ultimate freedom to go outside of that as you build your character. So as an example, if you think of um, soldier as your typical um, fighter or or barbarian class as, as a comparable, Um, You say, all right, well, this character is going to be very combat heavy and this and that. And certainly you can build them that way. Or you cannot. You could build a soldier who will have a base level of military training. And then invest all of your points of creation into more cerebral skills. And make your character sort of like a combat scientist. And you can do that. You have ultimate freedom. You're not locked into anything to say, well, I picked soldier and now all I can do is fight things you have a lot more freedom of how your character develops, which also allows you, and this is my favorite thing about role-playing games, to change and evolve. Maybe you make a soldier because you think you're going to be really combat-focused, but in the first couple sessions, you have really meaningful social interactions with certain people and decide, you know my soldier, maybe he becomes like an ex-soldier. Maybe he becomes like a veteran who... Becomes sort of a bureaucrat and like he just wants to be a leader of, you know, fighting for the the souls of the people. You can do that without having to re-roll your character. They can just evolve naturally. And uh, I always loved games that gave you that room to branch away from your original choice to become more well-rounded or to shift your focus. Yeah, that
0: freedom's very clearly defined in this game too. The rules make it really easy to do that. And I think the one that's going to interest a lot of people is the custom career option. How
1: does that work compared to a regular career? Uh, so a custom career can be anything you want it to be, but to, for ease of use, to help people who may not, like, for example, GMs who may be new to crafting new things for a game, uh, the the base option is you choose a career ability from any other career, and that becomes your career's ability. You then choose core traits from any ability, core Um, skill groups from any ability and you make your own career. So as an example I just said "All right, let's say you want to make a soldier who is sort of like a veteran who has become more of a social character. Well by uh, rules as written the soldier gets athletics and combat as their starting core skills and they get some points to start in that before they start spending their starting character points or CP to increase traits. Well instead you say okay I'm making a new career. I'm going to call my career, you know, uh, soldier bureaucrat or whatever you want to call it. it. doesn't matter. And you say, all right, so instead of having athletics in combat, I'm going to lower the amount of combat he has to, or she has, or they have to add some social. And you can do that. And so now you're starting to change that starting package in a way that fits your character similarly if you are more creative and you say you know what I want a whole new career ability as long as you have a conversation with your gm and and they look at it and make an ultimate determination if they think it's balanced and fair you can just make a new ability that may help you in for example combat and social situations and you can do that it gives you the ultimate freedom to craft balanced careers of your own that you feel really serve your character as an individual and a unique individual.
0: There's there's another piece of the character creation that I'm going to talk about in a moment, but that I think a lot of people are going to appreciate that specifically because I know I I used to play a lot of D and D, and it never felt like your level one through level three as a class. It always feels so. You think about choosing a bard, and everybody's giving you eyes. So. <laughs> like, Like, I I think this will help people get a little bit of freedom to get away from that. And the next part of character creation that I really liked was the Tokens of Destiny. Because mechanically, these serve as really powerful buffs or abilities. But also, they're almost like a a pre-built in little bit of story. How would you go into designing the the Token of Destiny system?
1: Yeah, so... um... The Token of Destiny comes out of... um, It was actually inspired by another indie game called Sagas of Midgard, uh, which was made by Drinking Horn Games. They have an ability called With Joy I Cease. So their ability is a Viking game, and it's a a high-mortality game, so people die fairly often. But they wanted to make death meaningful. So this ability allowed you to... Decide your character would die regardless of roles. But as a result, you got to automatically defeat the enemy. And so you then just describe whatever cool way you, you go out with a bang. And I like that idea, but I didn't want it to be quite uh, as fatal in our game. So, uh, But I like the idea of players having more power around the table, right? We've, we've evolved, I think, as tabletop game, gamers... Uh, Away from this idea of the DM or the GM is God and you're all just dancing on their strings to this idea of this is a game and we're telling a collaborative story. We all need to have more of a voice around the table. And so this sort of codifies and gives players a really easy way that they can sort of take the wheel at times and say, well, no, I want this to succeed. It's important to me that this succeeds, even if I would fail or, um, you know. I don't know where to go with this, but rather than just make puppy eyes at you that you're going to throw me a bone, I'm going to take command of this and say, I do know this and it it should relate to me. So you've got a couple options when you use your token of destiny. Number one, it's used as a shield for you. You can negate all damage from one source for the round that you would take, whether that's an environmental source like a fire or whether that's a single enemy who just bombed you and you can do it after you know the damage is coming right this is meant to say oh man maybe I would get killed by this crazy thing I want my character to survive I'm using my token of destiny this is not where I go down the next thing you can do is turn all attacks made by your character into critical successes for one turn and again that's when you need to bring something big down and you don't you the group's not doing well you think it may not end well you can sort of pull this this cord and do a whole bunch of damage You can also use the Token of Destiny to automatically succeed on a skill roll after you know you failed. Um, So again, the idea, like, you try to make this epic matrix jump across buildings, and you fall short, and you're now looking at a, you know, 100 meter fall to your death. And instead, you make sure that you make it just to the other side and grab on with your fingers and pull yourself up. Um... You can also turn a successful role into a critical success when you want to do something really, really cool. Or the last and most complex way to use Tokens of Destiny is to create a meaningful opportunity to move the story forward. That's what I was talking about of when players feel lost, right? Sometimes in a campaign, something happens. Let's say you're like, okay, our starship is is damaged. We can't use our faster-than-light drive. We're stuck on a planet where there's nothing around. We're going to be waffling here for hours trying to figure out where we want to go next, unless the, the GM is kind. What I want to do is I'm going to use my token of destiny to say, oh, I actually, you know, once, a long time ago, I was on this planet, and I found a hermit, and blah, 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 and they likely have the piece we need. And you do it in a way that you get to describe more of your backstory that makes your character meaningful for their presence to be there and moves the story forward and makes you not have to twiddle your thumbs and not know where to go next but the other cool thing is your backstory by using the tokens of destiny this way you organically develop your backstory right too often having run and played in games i'm guilty of it as a dm sometimes too players spend all this time on backstories and they all get to tell each other at session zero these cool backstories and they never come up again you're like why did you even spend the time making them Where this, like, it keeps bringing the backstory up and you keep getting to strap little bits onto it that make your character just seem more three-dimensional and uh, makes your backstory relevant to whatever you're going through at any given time.
0: It's one of those things that, to me, feels so obvious that it should be in War Games that I'm really (laughs) happy that it's... It's true, though. Like, it it makes sense because... You're right. We've evolved from GM versus players. For the most part, there are games and there are groups. But for the most part, we're trying to tell a story together and have some fun. So these little tokens that make you more powerful and your character a little bit more special or have a reason to be there, to me, it's like, why isn't it? And I'm really glad it's in a system like this because it just fits it feels nice in it thank you the other thing i wanted to really talk about was these quick play rules because this game like you said it's very number crunchy sometimes Mm -hmm. and personally i love that but i know there are people that i play with who would have a really hard time for me convincing them so could you tell us a little bit about quick play rules
1: yeah, so we we call we call our, our narrative or quick play rules, we call them cinematic rules, because that's the spirit of them, is that it's it's for moments when you don't wanna be sitting there crunching numbers, you want things to just happen in the way it would like play out in a movie. It was born out of honestly my extensive experience as a game master because I happen to have a home group that is very much split where half of the players really don't like number crunching math is not their strong suit and they they prefer quicker play and they just want to get they love story they're story driven move the story forward please and then i've got players that spend hours and hours and hours making characters min-maxing every last iota of a bonus they can get on everything because they just like Big roles, video game style, I want to crush things and just do big numbers. <laughs> and and neither, there's no right or wrong, right? That That's both valid play styles, but when you have people in the same group, it becomes very hard to find a game that everyone enjoys. So for years, we just went through this cycle of we play one game and half the group would be happy and the other half would roll their eyes and just be along for the ride because they... You know, this was our social group and they just wanted to be included. And then it would switch and the other side would be really happy and the first side would be bored to tears while we spent two hours going through combat, whatever the case may be. And so I thought long and hard about how to do that. And and of course, if you are a game designer, as you're making a new game, especially if it's an original system, every designer comes to this crossroads where you say, is my game rules light or rules heavy? And... I didn't want to make that choice. I I wanted it to be whatever the players wanted it to be. And so it was important to me that we had the ability to choose, but I didn't want to create a situation where you still were committing to one or the other, right? If I made two separate games, essentially, and put them together and said, this is rules light and this is rules easy, you still have the same problem because the people whose groups are split will say, well, half the group isn't happy this time, next time we'll do the other way. I didn't want that either. I wanted to create a unified system with a sliding scale where you could seamlessly move between complex rules and simple rules without anyone drawing up new characters, without breaking the game in any way. And so that's what I did. And so basically, looking at the scale, it starts out rules as written fairly complex. I think most people would agree it's a pretty crunchy system, rules as written. But then there's a section that talks about the cinematic play and about how you start to pare it down. Like, the first thing you do is you get rid of environmental modifiers where you're just dealing with what's on the character sheets. Then the next thing you get rid of is the secondary skill modifiers and the tools and all this stuff. And then you're, you're down to your base roles, but you can simplify it further than that. Let's say you're in a situation, and this actually came up during the actual play, um, during the third episode of the actual play, the players venture into cyberspace, And they actually enter a program called Heroes Destiny, which is like a superhero video game in cyberspace. So they get superpowers and they get to fight things. Well, the first encounter they had as superheroes is they fought this army of robots. But that's a lot of enemies to be rolling for individually, right? You're talking about dozens. So are we going to then spend the whole episode doing that? I had no desire to do that. So I immediately said, all right, everyone, we're switching to cinematic rules here. I want everyone to tell me your traits and your skills and your modifiers. And they did. And as the GM, I made a single role that determined success or failure. And they succeeded. So I told them, all right, you've beaten your cinematic role. Now you just get to have fun. Tell me how you beat them. And so they went into description of throwing robots into each other and pummeling them and using their powers and doing all this stuff. And it ended up being a five to 10 minute scene or whatever, of just them having fun, just winning, just feeling strong, just feeling in charge, and they plowed through it, and then afterwards, now they fight the boss. The boss was this digital kaiju monster, and so now I'm like, all right, well this fight needs to be impactful, their decisions need to matter, they need to be agonizing a little bit over like, oh, what's the next move, we don't want to botch this, so then we switch back to complex rules for that fight, because now we want them to be in the moment, moment moment-to-moment, making tactical decisions. And so being able to instantly switch from one to the other, I feel like, is a huge benefit to GMs being to run things. Also, what DM hasn't had, like, this great, amazing story planned, and session one, it gets derailed by, I want to start a bar fight. And you're like, well, there goes session one, right? This bar fight's <laughs> going to take up half the session. It doesn't have to. Now, you could be like, alright, so I plan on running a fairly complex game, but it's important my players want to bar fight. I don't want to tell them they can't do it, because... They want to have fun, and they should have fun, exactly. but I don't want it to detract from time. We're going to do the bar fight cinematically, and then we'll move back to the complex rules. Well, that's
0: such a fun way to do it, too. <laughs> so, you and the other fine folks you've worked with on this game have been going at it for about three years now. Correct. and a Yeah, a major part of that actually was during the pandemic... So, can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic affected development of this game?
1: Uh, The pandemic definitely slowed the game. Honestly, the biggest effect of the pandemic, the pandemic struck um, really in the midst, just before we launched our first Kickstarter attempt for this game. Uh, And I think it definitely contributed to why it didn't fund the first time. There, There was a number of things that happened. I also got kind of... Uh, blindsided by the release of the... Um, uh, why is it slipping my mind? Altered Carbon. I, the Altered Carbon. Oh, that, yes. The, yeah, which that's like a direct competitor for us. So that was kind of yes. tough. That if people are picking between that game and an unknown, they're picking that game, and I understand completely. I actually backed that game also. It's a great game. I just... It, yeah, it's very it couldn't. It couldn't be helped. <laughs> couldn't be helped. So... Um, so that happened in the pandemic and people's wallets kind of clamped shut. Um, so that was the biggest effect I would say is that it, it derailed us. but honestly, that ended up being a miraculous failure for me because while I was very discouraged, I actually walked away from the game for a little while. I'd say I, I probably didn't touch it for six months after that. You know, it's kind of down. It's tough. You put all this time and energy into something and then you don't you don't get your goal and it, it's really tough. But because I stepped away, I ended up having um, the serendipitous meeting online between myself and Chris Allen of Onyx Path. Um, Chris Allen, is he was the lead writer on the Werewolf the Forsaken 2nd edition game, and he's now the uh, line developer for Aberrant for Onyx Path. Um, and I'm a big Werewolf the Forsaken fan. I, I've been playing uh, Werewolf since I was a teenager. It's my favorite of their game lines. I actually have a tattoo of the Blood Talon uh, tribe logo. Um, but uh, So I met Chris. Chris is a super cool guy. And um, he ended up running an actual play for myself and two of my close friends of Werewolf the Forsaken, which is actually on our YouTube channel also. Um, but anyway, so by meeting Chris, I ended up... I've hired Chris. He's doing the short fiction chapter intros for a number of the chapters, which was a really cool opportunity. And just getting to pick his brain about development stuff and about some of the stuff maybe we hadn't figured out yet. Um, He was the one who actually recommended to me that I should consider doing an actual play, which ended up being wildly successful, and we have brought in a bunch of backers that way. And so uh, that was super valuable for me, and I don't know that I would have had that experience or that connection with him, if not, for the fact that we failed that Kickstarter. And, of course, that connection led to me doing certain things that I then connected with other people. So, for example, because he recommended doing the actual play, he recommended that I look at people with experience doing it. I ended up meeting uh, the three very talented actresses who participated in it, who, in turn, helped me make some other connections in the industry. So it's just, it sort of has been a very serendipitous story of the, the failure that was born out of the, the first Kickstarter not succeeding, leading to the uh, decided success that we've been experiencing with the second Kickstarter. And that's been really um, impactful for me. That is so, that's so
0: cool. I'm, I'm so happy for you. That sounds amazing. I'm glad that you, you had those opportunities. That's, that's great. Uh, we're actually starting to run a little bit low on time here, Dan. So I got two more questions for you. Sure. Um, So one question I really like asking everybody who comes on to this show, because I think a lot of people who listen to this are also trying to maybe sit down and knock out their own project. What advice can you give to somebody who's trying to make their own game, but they don't know where to start?
1: Um, I think that the most important thing is discipline. you have to go about things in a a meaningful way, right? It's easy to just focus on the cool bits, but very often, um, like the cool bits, I can sit down if I'm writing story stuff, or whatever else, I can crank out 4,000 words easy in a day and I I blow through it and it's fine. And the days I go through the bits that are less fun to do, the more reference book bits of like, okay, I just need to, you know, everyone knows about swimming, but I have to write about swimming, right? Like it's something silly or stupid, but it's important to be in the book and you have to put it there. It could take me all day to write 500 words for something like that. And it's tough, but you have to be disciplined. You need to create lists of what you need. You need to do some research to know what goes into developing a game. And the industry is a relatively small industry full of a lot of really cool people who are very happy if you ask them to help you figure out what needs to go into a tabletop game. Um, And once you know that, you need to make a list, you need to tackle it, you need to schedule time to tackle it, you need to hold yourself accountable for that, tackle it piece by piece, and before you know it, 500 words becomes 1,000 words becomes 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 words, but you have to do it step by step. It, It can be very daunting to just look at the end goal of I need to write 250,000 words. You need to just tackle it in bite-sized pieces. You need to be disciplined about how you do that. And, and also recognize when you are out of your depth. And ask for help. Because I am a fairly strong writer. That's why I've done the, the lion's share of the writing for the game. Um, but at the beginning I was convinced I was going to do the layout design for this game out of hubris, I guess, I, uh, I realized that I, I'm not a graphic designer. And so it seemed at a certain point, it, it dawned on me that I was like, I'm spending all this money and effort getting all these great, very talented illustrators to do all these illustrations. And then I'm going to put it together like a do it yourself craft book. It's going to look horrible. Like I need to pay for a layout designer. I have to do it. And so we, we brought in, uh, Owen who is very very talented we put up in the discord channel some test templates and and it's fantastic because he's a professional and that's there's times that you need to take that step and uh, and the other thing is be willing to invest in your project And I know that can be very hard for indie developers myself included because money's a commodity it's hard to come by but literally if you have to save in small increments of 10 or $20 a week put it aside and say, this is for my game. What you'll find, or what I found at least, is in the beginning that money doesn't go very far. You, you spend, you know, way too much money on your first couple pieces of concept art or whatever the case may be. But having that lets you then start to access the people who are more efficient, who can do it cheaper, who can give you really high quality stuff. And that's how you get from your initial really rough... Concepts to better concepts to finished pieces to and then as you start building it That's when you can approach crowdfunding and show people. Hey, I'm serious about this I've put in my due diligence I've brought in talented people to help me that it's not all on me And here's what I'm gonna put together and you can end up putting together something that is indie but looks like it came out of a big studio if you audience want proof of that go
0: look at the Kickstarter and just look at a couple pieces This was one of the most shockingly pretty just books right off the hop. Like before I even got into it, I was impressed. So Dan and his team have worked really hard on it. And I I think they deserve at least you to go and take a glance. Appreciate it. So final question of the night, Dan, where can people find more about you and Omega Horizon?
1: Sure. So, um, we do have, uh, Paleo Gaming has a website, www.paleogaming.com. We also have a website that you can access through the Paleo website, but it has its own link of www.omega-horizon.com. Um, of course there's our, uh, Kickstarter campaign. I, I don't know if you can put a link to that here, but otherwise, again, that you can find through our website also. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at paleo underscore gaming um, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash paleogaming, all one word. All right.
0: As always, everybody, those links are all going to be down below. Um, Anything that isn't, we'll we'll get it down there for you if you ask. (laughs) So, Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk about this game with you. Um, I'm so excited to see what happens next. I definitely have your actual play on my list to watch, and I'm very excited about that. Um, So thank you so much for coming out here tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Zach. It was a pleasure. All right, and as always, audience, thank you for listening. Dan and Omega Horizon, they're currently kickstarting, and they are scheduled for launch very soon, so go check them out. Take care. Have a good night. Bye. Thank you so much to Dan for coming out to the show this week. I can't tell you all why, but for this interview, I was so really nervous, and I think it might be just because of how much I respect Dan for his visions on Omega Horizon and the confidence level he has. As of today, August 24th of 2021, Omega Horizon will only be on Kickstarter for one more week. I've talked to Dan during the production of this episode and been watching the Kickstarter closely, and I can assure you that if you've been on the edge of backing this one or not and you are unsure if you should i'd recommend just doing it the price is really fair and you only have one more week so the 31st of august is the last day to back it and aside from that thank you listeners we've crossed over 400 downloads and i'm just so thrilled that you've all helped me do this conversations around these indie games are starting to come up more and in- My socials are constantly chiming with somebody wanting to tell me about their things, and I've I've absolutely loved it. It's been a lot of fun, and I can say without a doubt, this is probably the most proud of anything I've ever really been. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting me while I talk with these people and see where they came from. Uh, If you want to hear more from the show, make sure you spread the word. Word of mouth is how we grow around here, and I'd love to reach even more people if we can. Next week, I'm going to be bringing on a more lighthearted game with a very serious theme. And we're going to be talking with Moss about their game, Trastronautica. I think you'll like it. See you next week and take care.